when somebody is deprived of transportation options, it affects their ability to get an education. It affects their ability to have access to, to healthy food. It affects their ability to access employment centers. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. On this episode, we meet Dr. Richard Aziki, a chemical engineer with a passion for sustainability, social responsibility, and livable cities, who is leading the charge for transportation equity to make the full range of mobility options as readily available for inner-city residents as they are for more affluent people in the suburbs. Dr. Aziki takes us along his inspiring career journey from his earliest dreams of designing great buildings and livable cities through his love of scientific discovery to his nationally recognized work shaping the future of American transportation. We spoke with Dr. Aziki in June 2018. So we're here with Richard Aziki, PhD. Um, Richard, tell us about you. Oh, well, first, uh, I just want to uh, take the time to thank you, Dan, for allowing me to go on your podcast and look forward to sharing some of my thoughts and about things that I'm, about topics I'm very passionate about. Um, so a little bit about me. Uh, I was born and raised in Kingsport, Tennessee, which, for those who don't know, is about an hour northeast of Knoxville, about 15 minutes south of the Virginia border. Um, I grew up really, really interested in the environment. Um, I was looking, also got really interested in, in architecture. I've always been somebody that's passionate about buildings and you know airports and so I started off wanting to potentially figure out a way to kind of marry those two interests together um, but I think it really made a switch kind of out of that toward chemistry when I took an AP chemistry class and really did well in it and I realized that I could use uh, chemistry and engineering specifically um, to help the environment you know so I ended up starting going to North Carolina State University in 2001 got my degree in chemical engineering um, and then wanted to uh, eventually get my PhD because I thought at the time I wanted to work in an industrial lab and lead projects and research direction. So I ended up doing that, going to the University of Michigan, where I finished in 2011 with my PhD in chemical engineering and did some research on um, materials to help reduce diesel exhaust. So that was a way that I thought my engineering interest married with the environment, right? After I graduated, I came to the D.C. area in 2012, started at the patent office, um, working on oil and natural gas applications. Um, but I realized for me, the patent office wasn't for me in terms of my interest and background. Um, and that started, but being in D.C., you really started to get a, chan- get a chance to connect with people who work in policy, who work on, you know, I got a chance to meet people who work on the Hill, who work in the local D.C. government and advocating for issues related to the environment. Um, and so... Things kind of changed around 2015 when I was reached out to by the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. Um, I had been doing some consulting in between my time at the PTO and you know the, the foundation. I was doing some consulting work for a mentor of mine in the environment, in the environment, environmental space. Um, I was working quite heavily with my National Society of Black Engineers chapter, um, and as I mentioned, being an engineer and an African American. Um, that's very important to me, and I hope I get the opportunity to talk about that in sure. the, later. But um, I ended up getting reached out by, to the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, who were starting a fellowship on transportation, environment, and sustainability. And they saw my credentials and background and the work, and the work that I had been doing in the community and thought that I'd be a great candidate for this position. Um, so I interviewed, 
got that started in August of 2015. And that's really, I want to say I made a switch from traditional engineering in the lab to, you know, working in policy, working in research, working in communities. Um, and I have been, and so I've been able to make the transition. It was really a natural fit for my outgoing personality and, um, you know, really wanted to help the community. So did that for a couple of years, um, ended up getting this uh, opportunity to work at the Unit Concerned Scientist, where I was more focused on driverless cars and transportation equity. And I've been doing that for the last year and month. Wow, that's a lot. It's a, yeah, it's been a good, interesting experience, <laughs> but really wonderful. So what I want you to do is take me back to when you were a little kid. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, when Richard Azike was a young boy dreaming about what he wanted to do when he grew up, mm -hmm. what was that dream? Well, yeah, that, that dream was, as I mentioned earlier, just being a, actually an architect. You know, um, I remember every time my parents would take us to a trip, you know, whether it be to a big city or we would go to the airport, I would just be fascinated by just the design of the buildings, you know, the skyscrapers. I would take pictures of my little, you know, Kodak camera that I used to have where you flash and you take it to the to the Kmart to process the pictures. I would right. be taking pictures of cityscapes and buildings. And I just really wanted to be someone that um, was able to design the next major city in the uh in the in the country but also i wanted to make sure that that city was also environmentally friendly so every so you know i have having public transportation carpooling you know ways to you know not minimize the impact on the environment now even in a you know seven eight nine years old i was kind of aware of those intersections right and so i've wanted to be able to build these new cities build these new airports but also make sure that you know they were they were clean and that people people would be able to be environmentally friendly when using them. So that's kind of what I envisioned myself doing, you know, when I was, was, was young. How did that dream make you feel? Uh, how did it make me feel? Yeah, I think it made me feel, um, I think the, the one emotion that I would say kind of came out was, you know, excitement, right? You know, oh. um, like I said, being excited about cities, going to the museums, going to the the sports arenas, going to the restaurants, all that. And yet seeing, you know, all the the different ways that could be improved. I'm like, I mean, I would dream in my head, like, you know, if I built the next city, like maybe around my hometown and I wanted to make it like, you know, half a million to a million people, you know, this is, it would be built around, you know, it's, it's I would say it's kind of like building a Sim City in your mind, you know? Uh, yeah, I was yeah. going to ask you about Sim City. Yeah. Did you play with that as I a never, kid? you know, it's funny, I never did. I never did SimCity, you know, I just wasn't something that I, like, like computer games was not, never something that I was interested in, but I would imagine the city in my head. I would write, sometimes write it out on paper and be like, okay, this is where the downtown's going to be. This is where, you know, the, um, the industrial centers are going to be. This is, this is where the airport's going to be. This is where the, the entertainment centers are going to be. So I, just, I would design the city in my head and, you know, just kind of, Envision, you know, if I ever became an architect, you know, and got the power and the influence to do this, I would build a city this way, you know, in my hometown, you know, like I mentioned, being, living in Kingsport, you know, there's yeah. other, two other cities, Johnson and Bristol. I'm like, why don't we just make these three cities its own city? And then we put the downtown right in the middle of the triangle. So I would imagine, you know, things like that. And I would take visions and, and pictures that I kept in my mind from cities that I really enjoyed and think about how to incorporate that in my personal city. 
Did your parents expose you to any design aesthetic? I mean, were there, were there influences that got you to the idea of urban architecture? You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, in terms of my parents, not really. I think this is something that, like, you know, they, of course, they allowed me to, to really explore my interests. You know, they mm-hmm. were very, um, you know, stressed the importance of schooling and doing well. And I think um, that um, focus really helped me to be creative and to, and to explore my, you know, my passions and interests. So I really thank my parents for that. And I think really it's just, you know, looking at just the splendor of the city, you know, I just, I just found it, I just found the design fascinating. I mean, if you look at a downtown, let's say you look at a, you know, if you go into a Columbus, Ohio or New York city or a, or Miami, Florida or Seattle, Washington, just the, just the nature of how the, the, the downtowns and the skyscrapers and different designs are right. built and the cityscapes, you know, if you look at it from a certain viewpoint, you know, you just can see the entire city and it's just a really beautiful sight, especially right. because there, you know, there's some natural, um, a landmark in the background. You had this wonderful vision of being able to apply your dreams towards a cityscape and, yeah. and create beautiful buildings, but I, I would probably say by extension, beautiful in present places, right? Right. Yeah, beautiful in present places, yes. Like sometimes redesigning cities, you know, if I went to, if I visited a place that was like, well, we're driving so, it takes so far to go from one place to another, why right. can't we build more closer modular cities, you know? Um, that are accessible by, you know, people can walk to the place they want to go to, you know, they can take public transit. You know, I remember in eighth grade going, visiting D.C. for the first time and taking the metro and fascinated by its, you know, its function and every, and every you know, we don't have, you can just not have a car and be able to go from, you know, one part of the area to a far part of the area, you know. I've just really liked that, that intricacy and that complexity, you know, and I just wanted to build a city in a, in a current place or improve the current city to incorporate those things. So how did your dreams take you to chemistry? I would say that the ch- moment that kind of changed my direction was, you know, taking that AP chemistry class when I was a junior in high school. Okay. Uh, my dad is a chemist by training. Ah. And um, I got a chance to, you know, visit his company, you know, a few times. He showed me, met some of his coworkers, you know, got a chance to show me some of the, um, you know, some of the type of work that they did. And, you know, I was really interested in kind of learning about, you know, what are the environmental aspects of making p- plastics and polymers, which is what his company does. And as I, you know, took the chemistry class and I had a teacher who, you know, was just super excited about the work. I mean, she was probably one of my favorite teachers. Um, shout out to Miss Bovender if you're out there, you know. Mm-hmm. But she was, uh, she was just so excited about teaching chemistry. And I think, when I was able to do the experiments and work in the lab, I just was really excited about it. And then as I started to really research, you know, how chemistry impacts the world, I started to see where that connection to protecting the environment, to using, using less waste, using less water, you know, producing cleaner air. I saw where those two topics intersected and I felt, okay, I think that's my sweet spot. And as I started, so also learned a little bit more about architecture and designing buildings and I started to really get more into you know could this be a you know a career and I felt that the chemistry and environmental intersection would be I think the path that one would really allow me to use my interest and the skill sets to to make a 
positive change. And two, I thought that was actually the more stable stable route, at least career-wise at the time. Okay. And um, in talking to my father about, you know, yeah, I want to do chemistry and in college potentially. He's like, you should meet some, you should meet someone who does chemical engineering. And so I got when I got a chance to visit his company one time, and I was doing an internship at the, at the time before I went to college, and he, sh- I got a shack, got a chance to shadow a chemical engineer. And learning that this is chemistry, but actually applying it to real world solutions to make products and and services that will impact the community in a very positive way. That's I knew that's where I wanted to go. You got degrees in it. You got uh-huh. advanced degrees in it. Right. Your, your PhD is in the same thing. Chemical engineering. Chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. So what guided your dream path towards transportation equity? How did that happen? Yeah, that's a it's a good question there. And um I will say that in between, so it was kind of a it was kind of a switch, you know. I I had long time thought, okay, I was going to work in, you know, a, a chem uh, a chemical or energy company, working in the lab doing reactions, making sure to make materials that can help you know produce energy in a more cleaner way. But then ended up going to the patent office because you know the kind of time was the economy was kind of tight and things just were opening up for me. And then when I left the patent office. I was kind of trying to figure out like what I wanted to do. You know, I, f- I think I, at the time I felt I was going on a path that really wasn't for me. Mm. And so in between August of 2013 and August of 2015, I was looking, trying to figure things out. You know, mm-hmm. I was, um, I said I did some consulting on the side. I got mm-hmm. more involved in my organizations in the community. And so, and then the transportation fellowship came up. So really to honest, transportation equity was not really on my radar until I got into this fellowship. And then when I started, you know, researching and networking in the community, the people who work in this space, I realized how impactful it is to people's lives, right? Let's back up a second. Yeah. Let's define what transportation equity means. Mm-hmm. Could you define that for yeah. us? Yeah. So when I think about transportation equity, I define it as providing X equal accessible transportation options to all communities regardless of their status, right? Right. So for a person who lives in one, in one spot of the city to, or compared to another person who lives in one spot of the city, that the access to transportation options and the access to destinations, where that destination is your school, daycare, park, grocery store, hospital, that for any person in a community, regardless of their race, gender, class, whatever, has access to a transportation option that can get them to the destinations they need, they, that they need to get to in a safe and cost-effective manner. So that's how I define transportation equity. Okay, so let's unpack this. Sure. It, here in the D.C. area, mm-hmm. we have haves and have-nots. Uh, within the Beltway, we have a lot of transportation options, right? We, we do. have mm-hmm. uh, Metro Rail. Mm-hmm. We have surface transit. We have autonomous vehicles, I think, to a lesser degree. But quite, we have just most, more at the pilot level. Yeah, I pilot say, level. Yeah, I want to say it's more of a, I want to say it's a transportation but option. But we have yet. ride sharing. We have Uber yes. and Lyft mm, and, big and things area. like that. Mm-hmm. And then probably the bulk of it, at least out in the outer suburbs, is solo uh, drivers vehicle, right. who are mm-hmm. piling up on Interstate 66 and I-95. Mm-hmm. So what happens in a part of, let's say, the, the D.C. community? Let's say... Uh, Southeast Washington, where not only are there food deserts, but there are transportation deserts. What happens to the life of somebody who is deprived of transportation options? Could you take us through that? 
I can. When somebody is deprived of transportation options, it affects their ability to get an education. It affects their ability to have access to, to healthy food. It affects their ability to access employment centers. So if you, and like I said, when I talk about access, I mean, in a way we have access in some form, but it's the, it's the ability to get that access. You know, for what we see in a lot of communities that are, that are let's say a lot of communities, the lower income you get, the more difficult it is to get from point A to point B, right? So at a certain point, you can say, okay, I can if I get in a car and I can just go from this point to this point in 30 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in lower communities that where a car ownership is a little more difficult because of the cost and they take public transit, um, if that transit is not built up the way it should, you may have to say, okay, I need to take this bus and I transfer to another bus and then I transfer onto rail. You know, and all of a sudden you see commute times that are three to four times longer. And then especially we find that a lot, so a lot of the jobs in these areas are for these communities are people who are working off hours. So the public transit isn't as accessible because it's not, it's the headways, which is the time between buses or trains is way too long, was very long or non-existent at all because it doesn't run 24 hours. So you have less access to high quality job centers where you can get, you know, high quality jobs. It takes you longer to get to the hospitals. It takes you longer to get to your schools. And then all of a sudden you see the indicators in terms of, you know, being able to be upward mobile um, are significantly less when you're in an area where transportation, op- transportation options are much more limited. So it affects everything in a family's life. How tough a slog is this as an issue from a standpoint of how do we get enlightened by this through your work with the, with the CBC, with the Congressional Black Caucus, correct? The foundation, yes. Okay. Yeah. With the foundation. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we doing a better job, at least from the standpoint of elective officials, of making this a national priority? You know, that's a, that's a good question, Dan. There are definitely many, many advocates um, that I have encountered in my experience that are advocating for more equitable transportation. And this spans from proven sidewalks, because even many of these communities, even the sidewalks aren't there. You know, just being able to walk from a place to point from one place to another is dangerous. There's people who are advocating for better bike structure to encourage, you know, healthy living. And I think we're getting to a point where it's becoming a more priority. But, you know, when you have, especially in this country, that is very car focused, very focused on single obviously vehicles, the bulk of the money that comes from federal, the bulk of money of state governments that goes to um, our transportation system goes to those, um, to that, that type of transportation system. And we don't have a very, we have ways of measuring it, but I think it's still an effort to get it into the transportation planning. You know, how do we, you know, we're still discussion on what does it mean by equity? Does it mean access to jobs? Mm-hmm. The within 45 commute can move. Does it mean access to public transit? Does it mean time it takes from home to location? And how do you break that down by race and class specifically? Right. And these questions are, you know, being debated and not really, you know, there's not really, I guess I would say, a standard way to, let's say, okay, this is an equitable transportation system. Now, there are people who are working on that, on people that I've met and people that I, um, you know, admire who are doing this space and doing this work and trying to incorporate it into their systems. But we still have a long way to go. Um, and I would think we need to see some real world examples. Um, I will look into, I will look at Charleston, South Carolina, uh, the person who's working, who works, at the, who leads the Department of Transportation there. Um, He's Keith Benjamin. I would look him up if you're really into like how do you incorporate, how is someone who has that mindset, which he does, and he's worked in this space in a while, 
corporate equity and helping to transform a city's transportation system. So I think you need to see more examples like that to where, okay, this we can look at this as a way, as, as a major factor when defining where we build our roads, where we put our dollars into sidewalks and tra- public transit and things like that. So it just needs to happen more. We need to see more examples um, before, you know, I think people in other cities will start to pick up and push this. Well, there's certainly a lot of corollary between transportation inequity and the effect on health care, the effect on education, the effect mm-hmm. of upward mobility. But exactly, yeah. there's probably a lot of causation, too. Mm-hmm. What is this doing to the cost of health care? You had mentioned to me once that one thing that happens in a community with the transportation inequity is that people get run over by cars. They get hurt, seriously hurt, mm-hmm. probably can't work anymore, some mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. Should we be doing a better job of framing the problem in terms of not just transportation, but the 360 aspect yes. of every, everything that that affects in mm-hmm. that person's life or that community's well-being? Mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree with you. Yes, we should. How do transportation, as I mentioned, affects so many different things? Like I said, it affects healthcare costs, it affects education, and it affects opportunities to get access to high-paying jobs that can help move you upward in the social ladder. Your ability to get to get from point A to point B affects so many different things, and in the transportation space, in the planning community, and in our in our uh, halls of our elected leaders, we need to better accentuate those intersections. Right? Uh, if you're trying to build a new school, we want to build a new school, you know, um, and you're looking to try to develop the school for a certain community, how do they get to that school? Right? How do you look at that? You know, uh, that that trip. And is it accessible for those students and the families, right? Or if you let a build a new hospital in an area where it has not been a hospital and people have to, have to take two or three hour commutes just to get, you know, to their regular appointments, how does the trip from where they are to that hospital, is it doable? Is it cost effective? Is it time effective? These are all things that we need to look at. And if we think if, we, if we're able to, if we really want to build a better uh, society, especially in our urban and rural communities, you know, we need to understand how transportation affects all these different sectors of our lives, right? And and, and be more vocal about that. So let's take a pivot now and, and talk about an area that you're very passionate about, which is uh, STEAM learning. Mm-hmm. So STEAM is science, technology, engineering, artistry, mm-hmm. and mathematics. Mm-hmm. We know that more careers and opportunities are going to rely on those core skills. Right. Are we doing enough to get young minds dreaming of their futures in a way that's aided by STEAM? And if we're not, what aren't we getting right? That's a, that's a big question. I, I would say in terms of, um, I think there's, there's a lot going, there's a lot that's positive that's going on. You know, we definitely are seeing you know, increase investments by both nonprofits, corporations, and other organizations to invest in our, in our young, in our young kids to get them excited in science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Um, as I mentioned, I think a, you know a great organization that I've been involved in, uh, the National Society of Black Engineers, um, one of the biggest student-run organization in the country, is really specifically focused on the African American community, um, engaging young men and women to get excited about, you know, how this STEAM incorporate into the daily lives. You know, they have robotics competitions, they have racing competitions, they have coding competitions. 
they partner with great organizations like Black Girls Code and Girls Who Code. And there's so many organizations out there that are understanding this um, this need to really get us, you know, involved in in science and in STEAM, right? But there's still a lot that needs to be done in the education system. You know, just generally, you know, I, I you know, public, especially public education, we are so behind. We put so much on our teachers. You know, we have they have we have larger than you know larger than expected class sizes, and mm-hmm. teachers can't focus on especially the science. Those for instance in the STEM fields can't focus on providing the necessary necessary foundation for the students to be successful as they go into progress to college and, and and beyond to be excited about STEAM. So I think there this needs to be some training. Um, there needs to be increased um, investments from our governments and foundations and corporations to, uh, especially in the tech space. You know, we know cybersecurity, we know IT, information systems are the hot careers. You know, and so we need more investments targeted toward the schools to help get the foundation right. So then when these students go into college and study you know, these fields and then start applying for jobs and going to grad school and vice versa, they're going to be prepared. Right now, I think in the United States, we're doing a so-so job. And even more so when you look at it from, you know, if we compare, if you're looking at, you know, more groups, you know, Hispanics, African-Americans, um, you're seeing that there's a lot, there's a big drop, you know, between those groups and white communities that are focusing this STEM. Right. And unfortunately, if you see the stats in terms of number of graduates in African Americans and Hispanic groups, it's been trending kind of flatlined for the last 10 to 15 years. And so there needs to be more. And that's what this is a personal obligation for me. How do I and people in, who like me help to really increase that gap so we can get more you know, of our community engaged in STEM into jobs that are going to provide high paying, well, um, positive lives, positive lifestyles, and really also provide, you know, a, a benefit to the uh, community in general. So, Could you talk about the importance of mentoring and modeling? What are the positive aspects that can come out of that mm-hmm. to a community of young people in a community of color? Right. That's very important. Very, very, very important. So what we fortunately found is that many of these of our communities, they don't see a lot of people that look like that look at them that are doing this space, you know, their role models are doing other things differently, um, whether it's athletics and not to mention athletics or music, not to knock on those things. So, you know, um, there's opportunities even to get involved in, you know, if you're not going to be able to be a professional athlete or professional musician, you know, there's other ways to get those, to get in those spaces and do well. Right. But they don't see a lot of people, that look like them that are, are engineers, that are doctors, that are lawyers, that are other scientific professionals, right? And so when you're able to mentor and model and be in those communities, they see that people that grew up like them, that went through the same struggles um, when they were young, they can be like them. And then as mentors, we need to provide our young uh, people the guidance, we need to provide them the discipline, we need to provide them the opportunities and, and then and show them how excited it is to work in, the, in, in this in this space, you know, as a science, technology, engineer, or math, art or math in that space, and know that they can do it and be successful in it, right? Mm-hmm. So, and 
you know, the more we do that and the more we engage our young people and get them excited and show that we're there to help them, the more that they see as they go through their classes, you know, as they and go through their school and that they can be successful in that. They don't have, they see people that made it. They can make it too. I asked you earlier about dreams. Mm-hmm. And what I got from you is what I get from a lot of people. Those dreams made me happy. I could, I, I could visualize myself as an older person doing something that was perhaps fun mm-hmm. and joyful, mm-hmm. but probably had a lot of meaning. Right. In my role as an executive recruiter just concluded, mm-hmm. 20 years of that, sometimes I would see people who started off having some dream, mm-hmm. and then that dream got sabotaged by economic realities. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's all the college loans that their kids had, or mm-hmm. maybe it's the high cost of living, mm-hmm. or maybe it's the lifestyle that a lot of people led where they, they just got more stuff, got more real estate, and got themselves into, into a hole in... And maybe it's healthcare. A lot mm-hmm. of people are dealing with, with issues and they can't leave a job because they're afraid of losing the healthcare. Right. Mm-hmm. If you could, from your experience, not only growing up, but in your passion and your focus on, on communities that need better transportation options, mm-hmm. what can we say to somebody who's not joyful about work? And are there uh-huh. things that we can do to encourage them from your experience that maybe little steps that they can take Mm-hmm. where work isn't just this thing I have to do mm-hmm. to try to make ends meet, mm-hmm. operative word try, right? but maybe get to a point of, let's say, trying something out maybe as a side hustle, a mm-hmm. gig, yeah. and maybe that'll take root. Maybe I, maybe I can start a local business in my community mm-hmm. that keeps my community vibrant yeah. and, and shelters it from maybe gentrification. Mm-hmm. Do you have some thoughts on that? I do. I do. That's a great question. Thank you for uh, providing that. And, you know, I was, I'll, I'll give a little bit about my example. You know, um, you know, like I said, I've been in places where, you know, I've enjoyed the work where I am right now, where I was at the foundation. I really, really enjoyed it. And I saw that I was giving back and making an impact and, you know, places where you know, I didn't feel that. And what I would say is to people who are kind of in that or, you know, what are they, or are they, are they making an impact space? Is, you know, if it's not in your work, you know, find something that does give you the impact. Doesn't mean taking a side hustle. Doesn't mean volunteering. Does that mean mentoring? Um, there's so many ways where you can find your passion, you know, achieve your dream that are, you know, kind of out of the norm. And I definitely admire people who explore entrepreneurship, um, who, who do extensive mentoring, um, taking time out of the day to connect with people, to connect with their their leaders, their sit their fellow citizens, other families, to make sure that they provide a positive, positive provide a positive role model. Uh, just find that 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 passion, and I mean, you can even find in your work. Sometimes you know the 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 the, the slog of the workday might be tough, but then you might be mentoring someone who you know is just new and needs that extra push to, to get them to, to be successful in their company. I mean, you know, a lot of companies mm-hmm. offer volunteer opportunities, you know, and if you're in a company, if you're, if you're not at a place that offers opportunities to volunteer and give back to the community, get into those, right? Because it shows that you are taking, that the company's taking, is allowing you to take time out of your workday to give back to the community, right? So, you know, find that passion, whether it's connecting with somebody, you know, realizing the meaning of your work and trying to you know, expand kind of 
the circle that you know the box that you're working you, your work you're currently your work may be currently in right now and you know looking to expanding that to i think if, you know affect people in a positive way and i think if you're able to do that and really just look at look at the bigger picture and look outside of the box that you may be stuck in mm-hmm. you'll be you're able to find meaning that is so inspirational and um I'm glad that you articulated it, and I'm hopeful that our listeners will start modeling it in their own communities to encourage people who have lost their dreams to recapture them. And I, I don't mean people that have worked for a long time. I'm also talking about young people, too. Mm-hmm. Right. And if we can get them reconnected with their dreams, mm-hmm. their lives will be better, their work will be more meaningful, and mm-hmm. their communities will benefit. Agreed. Dr. Richard Aziki, I really appreciate you being on the tightrope. Please point our listeners to your website where they can learn more about you. Sure. Um, so if you want to follow me, my website is um, drrcezeki.com. I'll spell it out. It's www.drrcezike.com. And it's an opportunity to see a little bit about, you know, my work, you know, I try to published on different topics related to the environment, transportation, infrastructure, sustainability, STEM education, you know, all those things I'm very passionate about. So, you know, I love, encourage you to go on the website. You can, of course, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram with the same call name, Dr. R.C. Aziki. And I encourage you to reach out to me and engage. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for walking the tightrope with us. Thank you, Dan. Thanks again to our guest, transportation equity expert, Dr. Richard Aziki, for walking the tightrope with us. Links to his website and other resources are available on our website at dansmolin.com. Check out our past episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and post your comments like listener Modulated Canine Chaser, who writes, The tightrope is very well executed and interesting to listen to. And listener Avalon CT, who writes to say, I enjoy this podcast. Well, thank you, Avalon CT. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list, and please suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at dansmolin.com. From Washington, D.C., this is the tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin. And do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone. 